Have we got like we got a countdown? We should let's count down. Alright, ready? Four. Three. Hello, everybody, everybody, and you are listening to Shut Up and Sit Down, the podcast. A podcast all about board games, card games, all the games you can play in your very own house. Or garden. Or, or garden, balcony. Balcony. Or uh, loft. If you own a basement, you could play games in a basement all day, but you might get a reputation. Uh, we will cover anything that isn't a video game, isn't that yes, right? Yes, except yeah. for the Olympics. Uh, yes, which that's... is a different sort of. Did you watch any of the Olympics that was, yes. of course, in London last year? Yes. What did you watch? Uh, the opening. Okay. And did you watch any proper Olympics? Uh, I watched the bit where George Osborne got booed by everyone in the stadium. I see. I watched judo because I'm a straightforward man, and judo is great because what happens is uh, they have these these sort of like fustian uh, karate outfits, but mm. then as they fight the outfits become sort of unraveled and the hair comes undone and so by the end of the match they're they're sort of like half naked and uh, the clothes are just coming off just falling off that is not mm. it was it was good I never thought about any sport that way before it's kind of like they're combining uh, strip poker and like the the challenges to fight but also not to embarrass and reveal yourself to A, a international audience, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> Everybody's watching. So, uh, coming up on this episode, yes, moving rapidly uh, ahead. Uh, what have we got, Paul? Uh, we've got lists of games that we've been looking at lately and playing that we're going to talk about a bit, which I think include Dread, Curse and Dice Duel mm, and Cube mm, Quest mm, and Nothing Personal mm, and Seasons and Seven Wonders, mm, which we're going to talk about a bit, mm, and Andor, which and Legends is interesting. Of Andor. But we'll come to that soon. Um, and we've got a theme, which is terror. This week's theme is terror. We're going to be dedicating the end of the episode, a whole final big juicy 15 minutes, to one game we've been playing more than any other this month. And, and questions. About terror. Our sweat lodge, where we're going to be uh, sweating under the fire of our viewers. As they beam their question, the heat of their questions at us on the spot. It's a metaphor, li- isn't it? Live as it happens. Li- <laughs> Oh, God. 100%. Let's talk um, about some games. And now the weekend games with Shut Up and Sit Down. What have you been playing recently, Paul? I don't know. Let's do this in the entirely arbitrary order I wrote these down as they came to me. You've been playing Dread Curse this I've week. I've been playing you? Dread Curse this week. This is the new release from Smirk and Dagger, and uh, they're most famous for Cutthroat Caverns, I think, a game about going into a dungeon and being a jerk. Dread Curse is a game about being a pirate and being a jerk, isn't it? It is, uh, and we like a similar. We like a game with, with a similar theme, which is the Batalia, which is an extremely good pirate game about being a jerk. That's more complex. Dread Curse is a lot simpler. Uh, it's a game with sort of very little to it really you have a big bag full of money and then you have all your players sat around the table and what you want to do is end the game with the most money from the bag Mm -hmm. but the problem is in the bag there are two uh, black spots that are like curse tokens and if you end the game with one of those in in your possession you lose you're dead so you want to have the most money make sure you don't have uh, a black spot and you do this by every turn picking one of several rolls that are on cards, a bit like you do in Citadels, which is a game we really, really like. Uh, we absolutely love. So you can... I was leafing through the rules. I'm really jealous mm-hmm. you got to play this one. You can take a lot of money from the bag. You can, you can steal from other players. Yes. Well, this is the thing. Depending on the role you pick, you can take an amount of money out of the bag, which, of course, one of those could be a black spot, which is not good. 
but you can also steal from uh, players beside you or you can steal from the player who has the captain card. There's a lot of kind of dependency rules like the captain can draw two, three or four coins out of the bag and then the first officer, the first mate, can draw one less than the captain's draw. Yeah, see, this is the interesting thing. It, it just seemed like everyone's really playing with each other, right? Yeah. The, the thing is, I was really excited about playing it. Um, and we had quite a good time when we got to the table and it was interesting to try out but um, it felt like because the information's hidden you don't know where the curse coins are there's a bit of danger because obviously someone might be amassing a bunch of money you think they're really rich um, and you're trying to steal from them but they might be hoping you'll do that and hope that you'll take a curse also, all the money is face down. All the, the coins have different values, but yeah, you don't this see is them. Yeah, what I was wondering. Which so is interesting. If you've got a black spot and you know which of your... How do you even... How do you make sure a player grabs it if all your money is face down? You do... Uh, one of the things that hopefully helps you ditch things is certain roles allow you to give money, to swap money with other people. Right, so if one, if one coin in your massive pile of coins is the black spot and you can give that to somebody with a power, how do you find it? Uh, well, there's a little bit, yeah, there's a little bit of a problem there. You can also uh, draw special cards from a sort of a central pile. You pay money to a monkey, and the monkey gives you right. cards that let you do a special thing that's sort of a game-changing rule. They're part of the way you get around that. Also, every turn, in order to get the roll that you want, you bid by turning two of your coins face up and whoever bids Oh, wow. Face. Are those coins lost? Uh, they're not, but they show... They give people They show idea. people that you might have some fives hidden Yeah, and obviously you want... It's a, a kind of a balancing game of you want to look like someone who people will attack if you're trying to get rid of a curse. But you, you never want to look too rich, you never want to look too poor. This sounds really funny. It sounds like risk management. It sounds like coaxing other players into stealing from you. It was quite nice. But I felt like uh, there wasn't enough control in the game. or there was Because the roles are obvious. I get a lot of excitement out of hidden roles games, but there are no hidden roles. The roles are obvious. You have a hand of hidden cards. You have a couple. Um, I don't feel that they changed the game enough. Um... And the thing is, because there's only two curse tokens, and there's dozens and dozens and dozens of other coins, it didn't feel sort of dangerous enough. It felt too random. If someone happened to take a coin off me, or happened to give me a curse, it felt um, like there wasn't enough traction in what was being moved around. That's because, a shame. Because I didn't see a lot of the time what other people were doing. They're, it's almost like they're hiding too much, and I don't have... You didn't, enough you didn't ability feel like to manipulate the game. A bit too much chaos, then? Maybe a bit too much. It, uh, the first game we played ended in a kind of hilarious way, which is we found out that one player actually had both the curses. <laughs> which was brilliant, because they, uh, that, you don't imagine that. You imagine two players are going to die at the end. Yeah, but actually um, only one player died. But that, again, felt like it was a kind of a crazy accident that that happened, rather than amazing plotting. Okay, well, I'll try and coax one, one last time to get something positive out of you. I really like the rule when I was reading the manual that said players can cash out at any point. Yeah. So if you have a bunch of money and you might think, okay, you know what? I don't have a curse token. I'm just yes. going to stop. That's cool because, you know, you, you just voluntarily stop playing and then pray the other players are going to knock each other out or not have much money. That felt very interesting to me. Uh, I think that's a cool idea. And I also think it might be that when I tried it with a group of friends, there were about six or seven of us or something. And it might it goes down to as few as three. And I have a feeling with maybe three, four, five, it might be a bit tighter. Because you have more people... Uh, you know, you, 
more of a sort of a risk to the people playing rather than if you're in a game of seven people and you think, oh, there's only two curse tokens, I'm going to be okay most of the time. So you just stay in taking money. Whereas if it's three people, you might become aware that two curse tokens are floating around and quickly cash out. Yeah, I, I think uh, player numbers might be a problem with it. A bit like we were talking about the resistance last yeah. time, saying that too many players seem to spoil the broth. Well, we're certainly not done Gaming talking broth. about the resistance. Well, that's kind of... I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to playing it some more. I want some pirate coin-related fun. I was I'm really excited. I'm going to say that that's my bottom line okay. uh, final judgment, because okay. I don't feel I've played okay. it enough. It's fine. Are you okay? Yeah, it's, it's, a, bit, it's a bit sad. Uh, oh, you could totally throw me now. We'll play again and we'll, we'll get a better reaction. <laughs> yeah. Let's see, what's next on the list? But we should, yeah, definitely with fewer people, dice tube. Oh my goodness. I don't know what this is. You've well, had, I do. You've but... been having a rubbish time with Dread Curse. I have had an amazing time with Space imagine, Cadets Dice Duel. Imagine that I'm just on the street and I'm waiting for a bus and uh, there's no one else around and you want to explain the game to me. But you've only got... <laughs> Am I mad? Do I like smell of potatoes? Yeah, and, and okay. I'm not that interested and I've got 90 seconds before my bus comes. 90 seconds, okay, here we go. Um, Space Cadets Dice Duel is a game where... Uh, you've seen Star Trek. You know how someone's on helms and someone's on sensors yeah. and so on. It's that. Uh, and it's a team of you and your friends. Someone's on sensors, someone's on the helm... And you're flying a ship together. Uh, except you're flying it and you're trying to destroy another ship that's flown by between two and four more of your friends. So you have an opposite number who's on weapons and an opposite number who's on helm and an opposite captain. And uh, you're going to fly your ship by rolling dice in real time. So if anyone saw my escape review a while back, a game where you roll dice as fast as you can yeah, until you get the review. Point. Yeah, it's dice duels the same thing. So you, the engineering will roll dice and then fives is like helm. So if you want to move your ship, quickly give all the fives to helm and then helm will roll those dice and assign them to... Helm and meanwhile weapons is trying to build a torpedo. So it's just hilarious. It's entirely exhausting. Games last about 20 minutes and full of beautiful, beautiful stuff. Like um, in, in our game, uh, I did something called a crystal jump, which is where you spend a crystal which you can tractor in from off the board to jump to another location. Uh, has the bus come? Is, the, is my time over? I, can, I forgot about the bus, actually. Oh, your really bus has interested. gone past because you're really so interested in the... So it's... Because I am a crazy homeless, so what I'm going to do now is take you back to my car and we, we both lose, so to speak. But before that happens... But before that, I'll tell you more about so Dice So the, the teams know... You know what each other's doing. Yes. Sort of know so this is the farcical thing. There's no hidden information at all. Um, to, oh, I'll finish my story first. Uh, we crystal jumped to it, which is where you desperately leap across the board to another crystal, which is mm -hmm. very important just to suddenly change your location. And uh, the other ship rolled, did a crystal jump and rolled and happened to be able to jump to exactly the same square as us, which meant this awful thing where essentially the nose of their ship was pointed into the side of ours, so we had to get out of the way because you fire torpedoes forward. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was this beautiful thing where as the captain, I was literally screaming for engineering to get dice to engineering. to, And our engineer was doing the equivalent of um, fiddling with the gear stick, unable to get us into first gear, trying to move us forward. While the other ship just loaded torpedo after torpedo after torpedo, hammering us. It was brutal, and there was nothing we could do, and it was it was genuinely the funnest thing I did last week. Wow. Almost, but we'll get to our game of the month uh, later. Well, that's, yeah, I happen to know there's an interesting thing coming up. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, uh, oh, between, yeah. like, four to eight people then? Yes, you could, if you were mad, have two people on each ship uh, running all the stations, but it's much more fun with... Um, Three people on each ship gives you a variety of stations. Four okay. on each ship is interesting because the fourth player doesn't actually play the game. They yell at everyone else. They are the so captain. you can do. So I mentioned they're the captain, yeah, and uh, uh, yeah. Um, 
I mentioned something interesting, which is that there is no hidden information, right? Yeah. So if you're the captain and you've got torpedoes loaded and you have an amount of sensor points on your sensors station, there's this hilarious thing where you might both be pointing at each other. Your ship's ready to fire. You've got torpedoes loaded, but you won't call it because you have to do maths on the spot. Like you'll be sat there counting and going, okay, they're four squares away, plus I have eight sensor points and they have three points of jamming. Oh my God, we can fire. And then the other ship will yell, fire torpedoes, at which point the game stops. So because your calculation was slightly shy of what theirs was, they fire torpedoes and kill you before you even called it. Because the game stops as soon as someone yells fire and you calculate if you actually hit. So you're doing, so, which just results in beautiful things like, I remember in our game I yelled fire two, voiding all of our torpedoes into space. And my whole crew simultaneously said, what? And I looked at the board and saw that they'd just driven away. So I was firing torpedoes into space. Precious torpedoes that we'd manually loaded. Because I didn't even see that in all my dice calculations, they weren't on the board anymore. It was, yeah. was marvellous. But that sounds really interesting. So good. This is different from Space Cadets, incidentally, which is mm. another game where everybody's on a different station, but that's a cooperative game which is much more complicated. This is the same ideas, but applied to a very fast, furious team-based game. But either Space Cadets game is, is marvellous, and I would totally recommend it. Wow. We should, okay. We should definitely do a Let's Play of Dice Duel in the near future. Yeah, well, all right. I'm in costume. Oh, dear. Uh, should we talk about another kind of frantic experience we had last week? Yes, was this? yes. Uh, Cube Quest. Cube Quest. You made fun of me two podcasts ago for liking the sound of Cube Quest. Uh, you and Matt both. It's fine because uh, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> In a way that I totally didn't expect. Um, Cube Quest is a game of, uh, I suppose it's a bit like catacombs, isn't it? It's a game of flicking components across your table yeah. in a way that makes you feel very childish. Uh, and is fine because it's fun. Uh, how can I best describe it? You have two two mats. One mat is your castle and your area that you control. And then you put that next to another mat, which is your the friend's enemy's castle. castle and and the, so, yeah, the game is, is you have some cubes. One of the cubes is your king brick. And, um, yeah, you win as soon as the enemy's king brick is off the board. And on your turn, easy. you flick something. Just flick a cube That's another all. cube. How could that go wrong, Quinn? I don't know. Well, yeah, so when I unpacked the game, I immediately read the rules and said, well, hang on, surely this is a one-turn game where you flick a cube as hard as you can at the enemy king. But I remember you tried to... So then I tried that and found out why it doesn't work. It's quite... And then you tried it and found out why it doesn't work. It's harder than you would think. And then you get to the thing where um, starting the game, you you have to hide your mat from the other player by like putting the, the box or something between the two of you. So you deploy in secret mm-hmm. and then lay out your cubes however you like. So basically you can put the king... Behind a bunch of other cubes. Which is the obvious move. Or, uh, really, because there doesn't seem to be any limit to this. Basically, he could be inside a pyramid of the other cubes that you made. Yeah, or you could build sort of of totems, like high towers of cubes, from which you can easily flip cubes off that will go over your opponent's cubes. Uh, Yeah, it's just fun. It's really, really funny as well. The thing where... um, when, you're trying, when one cube is trying to tackle another cube and you flick it quite hard and it just misses that cube entirely and goes sailing off the board and is dead. Or they both do. Or they both, yeah. it's just, yeah, or inexplicable stuff like the cube bounces and goes flying over the target you were aiming at. And the thing is, um, I mean that in itself would be kind of fun, but there's all the different roles then in the game of uh, you have regular soldiers and then you have uh, things like the healer cube, which can actually be used to bring other cubes back onto the board. Ooh, or the freezing cube, which is you, you place it, when you use it, you place it on top of an enemy cube, and they can't flick that cube as long as the freeze cube is on top of them. Yeah. Which leads to this wonderful physical puzzle where the game doesn't tell you this, but you realise, hang on, if I just knock that cube with any other cube, then the, the freeze cube will fall off. 
and uh, and you know, no, almost no rules required. It just uses the rules of the physical world, and it's so funny, so funny. We actually, I'm really surprised, but we had a good time playing that, and yeah. I, di I didn't expect to at all. I thought it might be a little too simple, but I don't know. It <laughs> no, it was good. It's almost yeah. Catacombs is great. We love Catacombs, but it, this is a game where you go through a dungeon and it's all discs. But that's, you know, not the easiest thing to teach and learn, whereas Cube Quest is just so Cube fun. Quest is very quick and very easy. You can teach uh, it, play it, have an amazing time, and pack it away in ten minutes, which and, is not yeah. to be sneezed at. And pro tip, uh, have whoever isn't firing, who isn't flicking at the time, have the other player sort of guard the edge of the table with yeah. the game box to catch, because otherwise... I think it was our second turn. We had about two turns, which were amazing, and then we spent ten minutes looking for a cube yeah. somewhere in the room. So, pro tip from the, from the masters there. <laughs> um, nothing Personal is a game you know a lot more about. Well, yeah. Uh, okay, so Nothing Personal is something else I was lucky enough to try a few weeks ago. Um, yeah. This is a game by uh, someone who knows an awful lot more about board games than us who reviews them. This is a, a game from Mr. Tom Vassell of uh, the excellent Dice yeah. Tower show. Um, this is uh, his... Uh, awfully, I've forgotten his co-designer's names. Um, but it's a mafia game, and it has a few interesting things. Essentially, you're all... It, it's quite a heavy game. Um... All the players are trying to get influence on a Mafia family, and the Mafia mafiosos are all cards, which you place at the bottom. So you've got a pyramid, and you, you'll have a slot at the bottom for, like, the three, uh, sort of, like, the third, second, and first guy, who are just sort of, like, rough dudes who do what the people want. Mm -hmm. The top of the pyramid is the capo, and you place a random gangster in all of these slots. And because it's built like a pyramid and it has arrows guiding through it, you might, like, pull your family might place a lot of influence on, like, the bean counter. And then when the Don gets killed or goes to jail by any number of cards and other effects... The pyramid, then everything slides upwards. So your influence on the bean counter, who likes your family a lot, as he suddenly becomes capo, surprisingly, yeah. you now have influence with him. And, uh, and this is the gist of it. But mostly, what they've tried to do here is build a game of negotiation, whereby players influence each other a lot. Like, for example, if you, the, I think the first guy yeah. is just a murderer. Whoever's in the first guy slot, he's the hitman of the mafia. So whoever has the most influence on him can try and kill another member of the mafia. But you can exchange money or, I think, other things, I forget, mostly money at any point. Cards as well that you're holding in your hand. And mostly it's a game of saying, um, well, I think I'm going to bump off Paul's bean counter. And you go, no, don't do that. And I go, well, do you want to give me $10 to, to not do it? And you give me your $10 and I kill him anyway. And then you form an alliance against me. This is the game. Also helped by other wonderful negotiation-y things like... Um, people don't necessarily slide to the next slot up the pyramid. They're appointed by people on the next tier up. So I think it's like the enforcer, if there's a dead third guy, will pick the new third guy mm. from all other gangsters who all have different amount of influence on them. Very interesting, very cute, but um, the rulebook wasn't great. I really did scratch my head an awful lot about various bits of it. We played it with three. Yeah. Um, it was an awful lot longer than we expected. We actually stopped the game after three of the five rounds because we were all quite exhausted and burned out. Um, but I do want to play it again. A lot of so many interesting stuff happening and interesting things happening in that game. Like other wonderful ideas, like if the too much influence goes on a particular gangster and mm -hmm. they're too high profile, they go to jail at the end of the turn. So players can do things like they know if they put one more influence on a gangster, no, they won't get that gangster, but they'll send that gangster to jail. And again, this might trigger more conversations and more talking. 
very, very interesting. And it's been a long time since I've played a game, a game, not had the best time with it, but got no, I think I need to play this again. So there's a lot of negotiation, but there's a kind of a betting on, like investing in people who may come into power in like two yeah, or three or four rounds which is a time. fascinating concept. Yeah. That when we played uh, my uh, opponents, which was Brendan and Lee, um, all put a lot of influence on the capo and the, 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 the people at the very top, the counsellor. Uh, and I put a ton of uh, influence on the people low down the rings, yeah. low down the rung, which meant I had... Actually, because I spread it, there were so many of them, that was a lot of powers and money and influence coming in for me. And then, obviously, two turns later, they're all heading towards the top of the pyramid. Very interesting. Yeah, and obviously, I suppose you can see where, where everyone has invested and what their, their, where their interests lie. Right. So, uh, you see the potential of where people can or can't go. Yes. If yeah. I had a, Actually, my biggest problem with it is the same problem we were talking about last week with um, Game of Thrones and things, whereby... Yeah. With a lot of negotiation games with um, really open uh, scoring conditions, like Game of Thrones, you can tell how many castles someone owns. With yeah. this, you can tell how many sort of, uh, I believe, respect points they have. Mm -hmm. So respect is your victory points, essentially, and the person with the most respect at the end wins the game. Because this is an entirely open, obvious track at the bottom of the game board, the negotiation is somewhat hampered because if you get a lot of respect in the beginning rounds... No one really sensible is going to ally with you. Maybe this is just my competitive gaming group, but grudges aren't as important as he's going to win unless we stop him. Yeah. Which means, similar to Game of Thrones, your negotiations are all shot in the ankle by the fact that, well, no one can talk to you if you're doing well, which means that other players do well. So whoever's in the lead gets pulled back down, which means, ultimately, the first few rounds of the game have less weight than they should because, oh, well, I can do really well in round one, but that's going to... Yeah, you get a kind of an early game seesaw. Th yeah, and yeah, I've well, seen that in a number of games. Which is so, it's almost like, well, I, I can do well now, I can make a grab for power now, but I'll just be pushed down, so yeah. I'll just wait. And then if all the players end up ultimately doing that, which means the last turn or two turns are what matters, which for a three-hour game like Nothing Personal or Game of Thrones is tricky. But like I say, so many wonderful ideas, lots of nice components. Whoever has the most influence with the capo has a ring, uh, an actual heavy metal oh, ring wow. that, uh, that other players can kiss or, uh, <laughs> or wrench from your finger as, uh, as the capo. Uh, and you say interesting enough that you'd like to try again. It's fascinating. It's got a ton of good ideas. Um, yeah. I just wish the manual was a bit better. So yeah, I don't know if we'll be able to recommend it necessarily, but I think we might be. Who knows? Uh, shall we go on to Legends of Andor next? Yeah. That was a thing we both looked at a couple of weeks ago now. Yeah, this is a game from 2012, I think, uh, maybe. Uh, <laughs> who knows? No way of knowing. No way of finding out. Uh, uh, which is a cooperative game. Which is yes. like a cooperative game designed by Ikea, is how I would describe it. Uh, in a good way. Yes. That, that's a good thing. It's, uh, I suppose, yeah, it's a little like... Defenders of the Realm, at first, you might think, okay, it's a cooperative fantasy game of... Everyone playing a particular hero with particular powers, walking about the uh, fantasy land, bumping fantasy monsters on the head, and rather than just tidying up, which is kind of what we said Defenders of the Realm was, a game where you walk around and you just tidy up the monster explosions until they're not there anymore, mm. you have specific objectives in this, depending on... Deliver a letter, or find the witch, or... Um... Yes, a bit like uh, Mansions of Madness, in a way, I suppose, where you start an adventure, and that adventure has a particular... Yeah, Goal or absolutely. Condition. Highly, highly thematic stuff, and yes. you get cards that will the players will read out together. So it's not just okay, guys. Here's our adventure. It's um, you'll start off, and maybe there will just be one lizard man on the board, and then as you play uh, and time passes, uh, cards will be drawn that will develop your adventure massively, um, hmm. and players will find out all, all this together. 
which does have the same problems as Mansions, as Mansions of Madness, a lovely H.P. Uh, Lovecraft-style game about firing Tommy guns at unknowable horrors and being blown up, um, and the lights going out, <laughs> and all kinds of nastiness. Um, which is that you can only really play each adventure once? Yeah, and I feel really bad saying this about Mansions. I know Mansions is supposed to have a thing whereby uh, each adventure will be slightly different every time you do it, but I don't think they're different enough. And the thing with Andor is, uh, again, like Mansions, it's visually, it's really nice. It looks very good. The art's lovely. The design of the thing is is quite gorgeous and quite it's, pretty. It is uh, certainly one of the prettiest games we've ever seen. But... And it has that lovely thing where your hero, Matt, can be flipped over to if you want to be a man or a lady. Oh, yes, that's Which true. is very cool. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's an extra cool feature. Um, but you'll... We played through two of the adventures quite quickly in just a bit of an afternoon. Yes. So this is the thing that we were going to describe. The reason I call it an Ikea game is that... Uh, is that you start the game, and this is this is amazing. It's uh, some of the punch board has blue rings mm, around it, and the yeah. manual says, uh, "Well, now, now, stop, adventurer! You must take the blue punch board and put everything in the box because you won't need any of that." And then, without having to read so much as one rule, rule uh, sort of page of a rule book, you just start, and you're all sat around the table, and you read, and it says, "Now, here is how you move: so, let the friend to your left move a mat." So you walk through the tutorial. And then you finish the first quest, then it introduces a bunch of new rules for the second quest. And then by the end of the third quest, you're kind of actually playing the yeah. game. But what does the, And then at the end of the third quest, you flip the whole board, and it turns from a forest into a beautiful cave. And again, like, you haven't even read a page of a rulebook. This is, this is wonderful. It's very, very clever. It's uh, even possibly, I might say, cleverer than some of the Czech games Manuals. examples of that, yeah, where yeah. they take you through a kind of tutorial... Um, yeah, it's lovely just drawing cards and the c cards tell you what to do next because they're quest-related cards that come in a certain order. Yeah. That's all nice. But then this weird thing happened whereby I was like, well, how many adventures do we get in the box? Okay, six. That's, that's, that's not ideal. It's a bit stingy considering only three of them you'll be playing the game with. But, and then I found out that the quest number six is now make up your own quest. Yeah. Which means basically you're getting about two hours of actual full proper ass questing. We didn't spend a huge amount of time playing what we played and the other problem we had was it was a bit easy yes we didn't struggle very much to get through the things well now between the sort of creative element of quest number six and it being so easy i might be inclined to say okay well this might just be a game for kids then except i have a memory of being a kid and my memory of being a kid is being able to soldier through the toughest ass yeah. rule books because kids are way smarter than you give them credit for. No, kids, I totally agree. Kids have actual free time and will happily spend four hours on their bellies in their bedroom reading a rule book. And trying a game over and over in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree with you. Do you think that's something there. special about us? No, it's not, is it? Kids will play. No, I totally agree. That's why kids are amazing at all sorts of board games or Pokemon or whatever because they, they have the time to analyse it and. Uh, they're a lot more analytical than we give them credit for sometimes, I think. Right, so who is Andor for? Is it for a family where the dad or the mum can well, walk it, people through... It could be. I mean, it could be a light fantasy game that's not too difficult that helps you get through it in a way that we really liked. Mm. But it's, it's a weekend of gaming. And that's it, really. Yeah, and you know what? I just can't imagine buying it over Mice and Mystics, which we haven't yet played. 
but uh, but I've heard is incredible and does much the same thing. Yeah, and is also massively supported by expansions and downloadable stuff at this point. Well, this is the thing: if if Andor can can produce a whole bunch of extras, it's been out for that. a year. I have not seen anything. Not so much as a news. I might post. save it. Yes, yeah, so, or probably don't buy Andor. Although maybe look at some pictures because it's nice and has a three dimensional castle. Yeah, holy shit! That's another IKEA thing: was the the bits that we can put together to make a thing that was a thing, and you put it on the thing, and you. A dragon as well. Don't forget the dragon. Yeah. And we went there and we killed the guy completely because it was too easy. <laughs> yeah, less of an adventure, more of tour- sort of board game sightseeing, basically. Yeah. Uh, well, so, uh, what's next on the list? Well, we were going to talk a little bit about Seasons and Seven Wonders, which uh, we've reviewed already and talked about a few times, but um, this was for a very particular reason, wasn't it? And that was the... Well, they're both, they're both quite similar... Well, they are in a way. So, should, we, should I talk about Seven Wonders and you talk about Seasons? Quickly. Go on then. Go so, on. I dare you. Seven on. Wonders is... Oh, sorry. Uh, checking for recording. Seven Wonders is a game where all the players control kind of ancient civilizations trying to build a wonder. Uh, in each age, you get a hand of cards of things you can build. You build something and then pass the hand of cards to your right. So gradually, throughout a round, you'll all build seven things, but your options will dwindle, and then you all draw a new hand of cards and you pass them round again. So it's drafting and as much about denying what you don't want the player to your right or left to have the option of building. Like if, they're, if you're in an arms race, you probably want to build armies so they don't get armies. That kind of thing. Meanwhile, seasons... Seasons, I like the word dwindle. Dwindle. I've always liked that word, dwindle, dwell. It, I would name it, if I had a dwarf in like Legends of Andor, dwarf, I would name dwindle, it dwell. dwindle. Dweeb. No. Seasons is a game about being a wizard that we uh, well that we looked at very Wizards. recently and had a lot of fun playing. It's got a similar kind of card drafting where uh, although you've got a central sort of seasonal calendar that the marker will go around, you'll roll dice to have things happen in the game. What you're really doing to become a powerful wizard is you're amassing all these cards like you do in Seven Wonders, and gradually you lay them down in front of you, and they're all powers, they're all special things you can do. Some of them happen once, some of them happen several times, some of them trigger other cards or make other cards work better, some of them interfere with other people's cards. And a lot like Seven Wonders, you gradually amass a tableau of cards in front of you that represent all your wizardly powers and expertise. Which would you rather play? I, did that. I didn't know you were going to ask me that. I was just going to hit you hard and fast like a blackjack. Whap! What would you rather play? I don't play? know, because obviously I've played Seven Wonders a lot and it's really good. And I still think it's really good after like years of playing it. But mm-hmm. And obviously Seasons uh, is newer to us, but... We really enjoyed playing it. And it visually, like Seven Wonders, it also looks lovely. Uh, yeah, I guess I would say if you own one, there's no great need for you to buy the other. But at this point, I think I'd rather play Seasons just because it's newer. Also, they both have the thing where after sort of... You, you know in Seven Wonders you spend a lot of time thinking about what you're going to do next. But your turn really is swapping cards and then you can spend... No one waits for you. You can spend yes. a bit of time thinking, all of you together, and you seasons can do that in seasons. Seasons marginally more downtime, maybe. Because you, you have to watch players as they go, okay, I do this and do this, and it gives me crystals to do this and this. Um, one thing I do want to talk about with Seasons, though, uh, mm-hmm. if people have seen your review, your excellent review, um, oh, whereby nice. uh, oh. you mentioned, though, a lot about the colour of it. Yes. Which, but if I was going to talk about the sort of aesthetics of it, the thing I love mm-hmm. is that, you know, the Tolkien-esque fantasy that's bled into all of our fiction uh, here in the West is, um, uh, you know, wizards, are, they cast fireballs, and they're warriors, and they're scholars, and they're, but they're fundamentally powerful. They're almost like superheroes. We saw a lot of that in Mage Knight, and Mage Knight is the ultimate game for feeling like a superhero, you yeah. know? cast super spells that turn you into a bat, and your army into a... and you descend on a whole city and conquer it. 
Uh, God, I need to play more Mage now. Um, and Mage, Mage Wars is a similar thing. Seasons, though, offers this fascinating new take on being a wizard of, like... It's almost like, what if wizards sort of were so good at manipulating energy that, you know, they brought about seasons of the year, you know? What if being a wizard was about sort of, like, trapping magic... It's almost difficult to try. They, it almost presents wizards as like sort of stockbrokers of the universe, you know, absorbing energy from spring and turning it into yeah. a, a wild animal, then using energy from the animal to create a huge tornado of energy that they turn into an altar that overflows with energy, and then you use the energy from the altar and turn it into a potion of unimaginable power that turns you into a vase. Like, <laughs> you know, this is just That's sort of amazing. It's almost like a, a sort of a. Uh, philosophical recycling plant of, of wizardry and energy. It's, it all, it's very hard to describe. I might sound mental right now. I No comment, but I, yeah, there's something about the theme of it that's very cool, the fact that you're... It's not just those cards that I mentioned. You've got that lovely calendar in front of you and the dice burping up different things and the calendar moving kind of at a speed that's determined by how people play and what they do. And then that ties into maybe what cards you have in front of you because when the seasons change, the values of things change and the abilities you have might trigger again or you might be able to do a certain thing. I guess if I was, if I was going to take another bite of the apple and try and explain what the hell I'm talking yeah, about, yeah. it would be uh, if you are a wizard, this is like being of unimaginable power, it might be quite short-sighted to say, well, what would you want if you were a wizard? You would want to control people, or you would want to start wars, which is the traditional fantasy element. It's like, if these people, or these creatures of, wiz- of magic, are so powerful, who's to say they wouldn't be focused on things that are almost on another plane of thinking? More like they're in tune with the environment. Yes, exactly. Themselves. Yeah, like the, the wizards in Seasons, it does almost imply they go off into a mountain and spend quite literally three years competing to be the West Wizard. And at the end of it, what do you have that makes you the best wizard? A pot you've made. Or like a pair of gloves, you know. This is this is this is interesting stuff to me, you know. Um, and I also love the sort of gentle epic feel of it. It actually, to me, feels more epic than Seven Wonders um, because Seven Wonders, yeah, you're spanning two millennia of um, of building. In season, somehow, it's like the idea that you cast one spell across three months hmm. feels more understandable. You know, Seven Wonders doesn't actually feel epic to me, but Seasons does. You know what I should have mentioned, um, and I didn't, but it's come back to me now that you're saying this, is when I first, uh, when we first had the box on the table and we looked at it and I opened it and I looked at stuff, it reminded me of uh, certain anime films, Japanese anime films, where the magic is a little unusual and... Uh, nature-based and inscrutable and not really very clear and yeah which is interesting spirited away kind of sort of weirdness oh yeah the absolutely the feel of it i mean it's 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 again a french game with fantastic art i mm. own uh which seems to be a theme uh, more and more so but yeah. um yeah it's like this anime inspired chibi universe but also that has a sort of like the pictures really do pop and they come to life. Yeah, no, I, I, at this point I would definitely rather play Seasons than Seven Wonders. It's a little more hardcore, so new gamers I'd probably still play Seven Wonders with. Yeah, Seven Wonders is probably easier to teach and give to new people. Mm. But uh, And there's a lot more sort of card drafting and looking at cards at the start of Seasons to yeah, seasons work has that out what does what. backwards thing whereby the most important thing you're going to do will be deciding what cards you're playing with, which you do in the first five minutes of the game. Which, if you're new to Seasons, is obviously a nightmare. A bit intimidating, yeah. yeah. Oh, what's next on the list? We're well, doing quite well. we've been through the games on the list. I think what we should do now is either look at uh, what people have been shouting at us or ignore them and jump onto the theme. No, let's, uh, let's look at I the questions. I think we should ignore the questions. No, let's do it. You're, I think we you're should... afraid again. I am. 
And now, the shut up and sit down sweat lodge. Oh, it's very hot. Oh, it's so hot. Some of the questions. So, questions. Questions. Do you want to go to the Twitter or the Facebook first? Let's go to the Facebook. So the way we usually do this is we answer the Facebook questions in a lengthy and thoughtful way. And do Twitter we? we just try and get through, I think, yeah. Do we? Twitter's like the quickfire round. I suppose so. Twitter is like quickfire, like a kind of firing squad of... Of, of, of just opinions. Of and you three, go, ah! 4,000 people firing at us. Yeah. Basically a war. <laughs> okay, uh, um, what's on Facebook? Uh, a lovely fellow called Bjorn Hansen has asked, have we, on the theme of terror, which is nice, because I think some people just ignored that, uh, have we looked at any games in GMT's coin series? Do we find them interesting? So coin, I believe, is counter in... Insurgency? Count insurgency is how it has to be pronounced. Does it? Uh, yeah, so this is, um, GMT make a lot of very, uh, interesting, uh, quite tough war games. Yeah. And Counterinsurgency is this thing where, uh, yes, it's, they're asymmetrical games they're experimenting with to do with, um, the War on Terror is the one I've played. Yeah. Um, Labyrinth. The ones that, yes, Labyrinth, War on Terror. And then the other ones which I'm desperate to play are Cuba, up to four players. Uh, the one in Afghanistan, and then also Colombia. And the Abyss. Yeah, Andean Abyss yeah. is Colombia, and then Cuba is the Cuban socialism in Cuba. In the I don't know anything about it. And you're you're a big fan of asymmetrical games. I am, and I'm a big fan of highly thematic games. Yeah. So yeah, Labyrinth War on Terror is one of those games that I've been wanting to review for a while. What's the guy's name? Uh, Bjorn. Bjorn. Hansen. Bjorn. Labyrinth War on Terror is the game I've been wanting to review for a while. It's really interesting. It um, is. It has some really interesting mechanics that um, that I think are just really educational, like the fact that. America has this incredible military that, that and they can invade countries, um, but can't leave until the government is relatively stable. So you can tie up the American military by, like, let's say, if they're in Afghanistan and they're in uh, Iraq, for example, to pick a topical uh, example, yeah. they then can't really leave, which leaves you to um, do other things elsewhere. Um, but, of course, you still, as the uh, Islamic fundamentalist movements, want to uh, invest resources keeping America in those places. It's interesting. It's really cool. Uh, we should we should probably look at it again. But we yeah, should. I mean the the way that the resources that both sides collect are completely different, really, yeah, and your yeah. objectives are different. It bugs me though because I can't. It's like a kid who hasn't, you know, you need to eat your mane before you get to dinner. I can't justify buying another coin game until I've reviewed Labyrinth, but I want to play all the others more because they're for more than two players and they have fragile alliances ah. and between different factions. Like uh, in Colombia, it's um, you could be the left wing uh, revolutionaries, the right wing revolutionaries, the government. Uh, or the drug cartels, and they all have different powers uh, and all oh, form wow. different allegiances depending on who's in power. Oh, wow. Very, very, very interesting, Mr. Bjorn. Would you like another question? Yeah. Uh, a lovely person called, I think this is Miles Sherrill, and I'm really sorry if I've got that wrong or written that down wrong because I can't read my own writing. Do you think a board game could actually ever be terrifying? Mm. Do you think that? Well, you would be better equipped to answer that than I would because I'm thinking about my most terrifying experience and I was running an RPG, which mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned is a table game, Yeah. of Deadlands and I was trying to scare you and it was all some abstract thing where you all went to hell. I... Certainly loads of role-playing games that I've played and some that we've played together I think, yeah, have been. Um, I've... <clears throat> I've run stuff that people have told me has been scary. I've played stuff, including stuff with you, that I've thought was scary. Yeah. Um, that's obviously been stuff that's based uh, an awful lot around less components on a board and more characters and plot and situation. Abstract storytelling. Yeah, I feel like maybe... 
Board games have a tough time of it because, um, because yes, uh, horror is often about what's unknowable, and uh, board games are nothing if not systems of knowable rules. I mean, even Arkham Horror, you know, which is the most surprising, I would guess, horror board game where you're going around a board and fighting Lovecraftian monsters and trying to close gates. Um, it, it's not unknowable because you know that the decks of cards are going to do yeah. something, whatever it is, they're going to do something. Maybe you're going to miss a turn. Maybe you're going to have a monster come at you. I think you lose a lot of horror from the physicality of shifting some tokens around. You, also, you think that cards. as well? Well, yeah, you know, there's a horrible uh, hound of Tinderloss coming at me, but it's a sort of inch square token on it. <laughs> That's a bit different to if someone is opposite the table and they don't just say the hound of Tinderloss is coming at you, but they describe the noise and the smell and something in the next room and you can't see what that is yet. Right. Um, I'm, I've heard that uh, the... There's a there's a horror RPG which a lot of people talk about that I forget the name of, but where um, uh, every check is done via a Jenga tower, and uh, so all the players will be in an attic or running away from a murderer. And if you, every time you want to do a skill check, you remove a brick from the Jenga tower, so gradually you know something's going to go wrong and someone's going to die, and uh, that will be that. But it's just very tense as you're running away, running away. Okay, if you're running away, draw a brick out. Are you going to make it? Are you going to get away? Which is a fascinating way of. Um, of doing random chance. I was just listening to uh, the Dice Tower podcast the other week and Jeff Engelstein, who designed uh, Space Cadets, was talking about the difference between um, white noise and pink noise in random chance, whereby humans tend to react better and you can get interesting effects out of pink noise, which is where yeah. you know that um, the result you get this time is going to be closer to the result you got last time versus total randomness in Arkham Horror. Oh, so right. pink noise Arkham Horror would be where all the decks get worse as you get through them, for example. Or potentially worse or potentially better. For example, yes. Okay. Um, so you can feel you're working towards something or that something is coming towards you. Yes, but we're getting off the question of terror. But um, Well, that, that's actually really good. That might lead us into our next question. Uh, Jennifer Bainey asks, what do we look for in a good horror game, in a horrific kind of terrifying gaming experience? Yeah. Like, are there particular man- uh, mechanics? Like, maybe... You said I you mean, had an answer to this. Well, I not? was immediately thinking... Um, Hidden information is interesting. What you just mentioned I thought was really cool, the idea that you might have a sensation that something's being worked towards. But I was also thinking um, betrayal mechanics or surprise. I don't feel that betrayal at the House on the Hill does it well, but that kind of thing where maybe in Shadows Over Camelot, you know, you have a player who could potentially turn against the team. It's not really very terrifying in that context. No, I mean, for me... I like that idea. For me, horror is about seeming out of control. Like you mentioned, like... That's what I would look for in a good horror game. And for Betrayal Betray at the House on the Hill is kind of... Works for me as a horror game, not for the moment of betrayal, where mm-hmm. it turns out I am a vampire, but um, the moment where you read the book and you go, okay, in this game, you're going to be trying to kill a vampire and you need a stake and you need to do this and you need to do this. And then you realise, well, we, I can't do that. That's almost impossible. That's the moment that it's horrifying. Ah. Like, um, for me, Escape from the Aliens in Outer Space is a good horror game because you're totally out of control. You have no, it's, to, it's pitch black. Yes. You're moving around, you're, uh, you're navigating, and you might get eaten literally any turn. Well, that's, I mean, that's, I think, a really cool example because that is about, uh, there's an element of not knowing which players are on your side mm-hmm. because uh, there are hidden roles. Some players are aliens who are going to eat, some players aren't. 
aren't aliens. Some players are going to escape, but you don't, <laughs> until someone's intention is declared, you just don't know. And that's, yeah. I suppose, a bit like if, the same thing in Camelot, where there may or may not be a traitor amongst you. Yeah, I suppose it's interesting. So, in answer to this question, then what we find, what we look for in a good horror game is unknowable factors, yeah. but uh, something that is writ, writ into the game. So not just you draw a card and something you couldn't predict happens, but. Uh, when the unknowable elements are built into the strategy and you have to... Uh, am I explaining this? Yeah, I think so. If I, I would say if they're built into the players, if they're given to the players to... Uh, like in Escape from the, the Aliens in Outer Space... And where players are allowed to manipulate the lack of information. Yeah, and players choose... The players of the aliens choose at the moment that they finally decide they're going to declare that they're eating someone. That's when you know they're an alien. That's entirely within their control and out of your control, which is a cool thing. Yes. And that is... If you give that agency to a player and they use it when they fancy, I think that's cool. Yes. Uh, what, have, what else we got? Uh, Merlin Thompson is not at all interested, really, in terror. And he says, <laughs> uh, what are our thoughts on 40k miniatures? And the thing is, we've been asked this a few times. Ah, so uh, right. So this is the Warhammer 40,000 miniatures game. Yes. And we've not really talked about Well, no, Shut Up and Sit Down has always avoided kind of big, large-scale tactical, tactical miniatures games because... I think they they hold. Why, why have we done that? Well, for me, they're a whole bas- massive niche thing in and of themselves, but also because they fare incredibly badly against the games we review. Like, essentially, forty k miniatures game is like, well, you're going to be spent. You could buy this game, which is thirty five pounds, and you'll have fun. Or you could pay this. You could pay fifty pounds for a game that's bigger, requires assembly of miniatures, has eight or nine times as many rules, requires a huge table, this amount of scenery, and it's less fun. Like it, it fares very badly. If you're going to play, you're you're buying. If you you're buying into the dream, really, you're buying into the dream of a painted army of yeah. an expanded army of a tournament with your friends where you win, which is not really what Shut Up and Sit Down's about. It's very, I think, from a number of ways, and this isn't kind of to knock people who do tabletop. Miniatures. No, for the record, I did used to play a lot of Warhammer uh, when I was very much younger. I was one of those annoying rich kids who uh, who had miniatures. <laughs> Um, I, well, the thing is, I think even if you had the money or not, you found a way of, of trying to scrounge what you could from people. From peop- All the people I know who tried Warhammer, it was always uh, swapping and, and grabbing what you could in all sorts. Um, I can see why we wouldn't... We've never really been that interested. It's... I don't want to say niche is bad, because obviously niche, niche isn't a bad thing at all. No. Everyone has their niches that they're comfortable in. But there's something about the mechanics of a lot of Warhammer games that are sort of, I think, fundamentally quite simple. They have not changed since the... Well, I mean, okay, so there are small evolutions, you know, of the, yeah. of the game, you know, decade on decade. But there are big changes which are problematic, like um, War Machine, okay? Mm-hmm. War Machine is obviously now a competitor Warhammer that's come out. And it does so much that's so clever, you know, like... I wouldn't look at Warhammer first. I would look at War Machine first because it solves several big problems with Warhammer. First off, a War Machine's equivalent of, well, Warhammer, War Machine and Hordes are the two versions, which is like the fantasy yeah. and futuristic versions, yeah. are cross-compatible. So you can play your friend's fantasy army against your sci-fi army with the same point mechanic, and that's yeah. cool. Um, it has another big thing as well where the game's over if you kill your opponent's sorcerer, which means no matter how badly you're doing, there's always a chance if you do this move and you throw someone this way and then they do a thing, you can still win. Whereas Warhammer is this grind where you just hit each other and hit each other hit and hit each, each other. other or sit on locations. It feels like, uh, again, I don't know, not to knock them, I've had fun with them, but largely whatever iteration of Warhammer there's been, and there's been a bunch while I've been alive, yeah. it's mainly the mechanic is shooting a thing. 
mm-hmm. and, and trying to get a, trying to get a number to shoot a thing. I guess, and that comes from tactics, I guess, which is good. But right. there's so much else in gaming exactly. that you can do. You know what? Like recently, I've obviously been playing Netrunner, which is the first collectible card game in my life that I'm into, and I'm buying and I'm building decks, and I've got a local meta game where we tailor decks to be each other's decks, and it's great. Mm-hmm. But it took a game as, as good and as beautiful as the Netrunner reprint to get me into collectible card games. I might get into miniatures gaming if a game came along that was that good. And that, that had that much variety of how you could play it? Yeah, and that visibly fascinating, um, which miniatures games haven't come along. So, you know what, I'll leave this like £800 hobby aside and we'll just cover other things. Fair enough. God. Okay, well, that's what Shall I Sit Down thinks of miniatures games. Uh, I feel a bit bad now, having said that. Oh, it's fine. Gaming is fascinating, and I just can't imagine becoming that narrow and dedicating myself to one hobby that much. Miniatures gaming is almost a whole other aside. And the thing is, I partly, I, from my point of view as well, not to be uh, dismissive, but it's already covered. It's not as yes. if it's not represented. We started Shut Up and Sit Down because there was no really great board game and card game coverage, in our own opinion. And, um, uh, and But miniatures gaming, you know, there are like uh, Beasts There's of War. There's quite a things. bit out there already. Yeah. Um, and it's... I, I think it needs less pushing. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Plocker would like to know what's your most terrifying review, as in what review have we been the most terrified about doing? Arkham Horror, for definite. Probably. Shut up yeah. and sit down has been skewering darlings since 2009. Uh, but, you know, the fact is, a lot of the most popular games, like Arkham Horror, like Munchkin, we don't get along with that well. It, well, it depends. We get, I don't know. No, no, some, like, some fascinating Some game. we do, some we don't. You know, like Robert Rally, like Memoir 44, yes, we do. Dominion love. we love. Um, Absolutely. Although, Dominion's now, why play Dominion when we can play trains? Play with a little train, Paul. That's true. I can put my train on your tracks. If there was only some way to cross-combine Dominion and trains. Trains is a combination of Dominion and trains. But uh, mixing all of that anyway. (laughs) um, Well, the thing with Arkham Horror, we said it was quite good, but it had problems and we wouldn't recommend it because it's too big and too expensive and too slow. And the point is to, you know, for £60 or like $80 or something, you could probably buy two other games you'd have more fun with yep. and enjoy more. Which is And you'd get to the table more often because yeah. who, Arkham Horror, you know, you want four players, you need to explain the rules. It takes day, maybe six, seven hours. And it's a bit chaotic and it's quite random. And if I have seven hours and that many people, I'd probably just play Twilight Imperium yeah. and have a more memorable time. Uh, so, yeah, I suppose we, when we were doing that, we knew that we were going to be telling people yeah, we I th- don't think you should buy this game compared to all the other stuff that we like more. And it was definitely our first review that was that negative of a game that was so popular, and we did get a lot of nasty comments. We got some stick, even though we didn't We didn't say it was terrible. No, we, we didn't, which is the was... great thing. But uh, coming from video games, uh, you become aware very quickly from video game site comments that people... When reading reviews, secretly don't want to be told if a game's good or not. They want to be told what they believe in their hearts. If they've been, if a game's been hyped up for a very long time and then read a negative review, it's probably less true with board gaming. But in video games, certainly you're going to be shot and killed if you they're say black that. Hearts, yeah. Quentin, they're black hearts. I still get the dream sometimes that I'm refreshing comments and they're getting worse and worse and worse. And really? No. Oh. Uh, well, that was all. The, that was quite a nice question. That's oh God! Expert, Hang on, wait. Actually. Talk about something. I'm going to go to the iPad for Twitter. Where are you going? Why? Why is the iPad out the window? What's on the belt? What? He's gone. Oh my God! How did you come in through the loft? Hello. Where are your pants? Okay, right here we go. I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's go all the way back. We'll answer these. Wow, there's quite a few. In chronological order. I love chronology. Okay. Hang on. Can you actually clap? Because all right. 
Okay. Right, as fast as we can. This is this fast is us under no, fire. No. Uh, Russell Lindsay wants to know what do you regard as the most terrifying meeple or player pieces? Um, What's the scariest piece? Um, Black spot from Dread Curse. No, that's not <laughs> scary. It's a cool idea, but I don't know if I'm scared by that. What about the enormous Cthuloids from Mansions of Madness, where the the lo- yeah yeah the the, book, the the keeper says and then disappears and places a huge thing Actually, on the board. That you is know, a it's thing. it's going to lick you to death. I'm if not you don't. that much of a fan of Mansion of Madness, but the miniatures are very good. Okay, right. which is great. It's a game that you can look at and not play much. And also, just so it's so don't... scary to kill those things. Killing them is such a nightmare. And... That's true. It's got that. Pro- Proper Lovecraft thing of you can't kill anything. Andrew Pillow says, "What game are you most afraid of reviewing?" Uh... Uh... Well, what's going to be what, what's like really popular that we're probably oh what, no El- Eldritch, <laughs> Eldritch Horror, the sequel to Arkham Horror is coming. Oh yes, no, that's a perfect answer because it might because be it's... different or it might. <laughs> It might just be the same. It might just be us saying, sounding like you know that's scary because we're going to sound like a broken record and just repeat ourselves. And um, at Omni One Eight One says, "What rules <laughs> have read that scared you the most, either due to complexity or absurdness?" Uh, Virgin Queen for sure. Uh, Virgin Queen or I feel bad saying this, but to some degree, Mage Knight. Oh, even though the yeah. game is really good, it those rules. Something about those rules are just like oh, totally opaque, and you the read first them and you two think, or three times I just bounced off. Even though the game is very good, Virgin Queen, I was practically in a cold sweat because I knew people were coming over. I had like five hours, and I read the mail. I was like, oh god, this, I'm not. I did actually did the really good kind of review video of it. Yeah, where I, really I just like. I had like it was like a documentary where I talked about my bad experience. But it's, it is tough. Not all games are, are easy to digest. So that's on our Vimeo. All of our old videos are on our Vimeo channel, people. Vimeo. 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 Tell us the story of a time you squealed in terror while playing a board game. Uh, there was that time that you from? felt my ball sack under the table. That's from One Lives Left. At One Lives Left. Um... Um, I've never done that. I've never squealed in te- Skull and Roses. Skull and Roses, we always say, is the game that makes you scream. Yeah. You the go, thing Aah! is, you, we do. There's a lot of that sort of, uh, that or the final moments of the resistance often have a moment of uh, severe frustration. <laughs> yeah, I, oh no, I do scream while playing werewolf if someone claims I'm a, if someone claims to be the seer and says I'm a werewolf and it's just because they're a werewolf yeah uh, Andrew Roper at Andreth says what's the scariest chain of events you've ever endured while playing Arabian Nights um, there was a really bleak thing whereby uh, me oh and- the elephant graveyard no, well, no? Okay. So what, okay. what's you cute? tell yours I'll okay right so um, yeah so myself and Brendan were joint playing a character and um, we were walking along and it said you encountered uh, a cunt, uh, a meet, uh, an unfortunate beggar or something. Okay. And we chose Beat from the... Uh, so beat the unfortunate beggar. <laughs> kind of just because it was the funniest response. Oh, yeah. But then what happened? And you read yeah. it and it says um, you come across this beggar who asks you for money and you beat him for his, his insubordination. Then across the horizon, a massive merchant caravan or something just showed up while we're beating this beggar. And they, they demand to know why we beat this beggar. And the question was... Are you a sultan? And as it happened, we were. And we were a sultan of this far-off African city. And it says, sort of like, um, bowing to your, your greater wisdom and your position in society, they join you in beating the beggar. <laughs> and it was this horrible thing of, oh, God, what have we done? And we gained, like, one fame for being a dickhead. And that was basically, that was it. That was the end of it's, our adventure. It's got a really interesting thing in it where the story that you're telling can gradually go out of control. And it's a similar kind of thing when Lee and I were joint playing... 
um, and our character ended up lost at sea and then uh, in a far distant land and then wandering through an elephant's graveyard and more and more impoverished, but at the same time more and more spiritually developed. Yeah, until eventually you came back as an insane swami from the east. And we had incredible experience, but no sanity. It was, <laughs> uh, it was so weird. Rahul Ricky at Rahul Ricky says, Favourite house rule for any game? Uh, what uh, game was it we played? Oh, uh, Galaxy Trucker, you have to build with one hand. Is th- surely that's in the manual. It's not. It? Is it not? I thought it was, and it's not. So I saw on a YouTube video ages back, and one of the, you know those cases where you see a YouTube video or something, and you go, oh, that's how you play it, and so you'd assume as you read the manual, and you don't notice the absence of the rule. Ah. Well, the, the, the thing that I always say, and this is a bit kind of generic, but and we always do this, is if someone does something uh, on their turn, and they're about to say, oh, can I just not do that? We always go, yeah. Because we're not jerks. Not me playing Netrunner with uh, my That's, with Sai. Wow, you're, you're pro Netrunner, you're serious. It's because he beats me every time, and so when he's like, oh no, I made a mistake, can I just... No, no, Sai. But no. generally, we, we don't mind a bit of sort of retraction. Absolutely or... not. Uh, at Fail Not um, says, ever had to walk away from a Christos. game after, after getting too freaked out? Uh, have we ever had to walk away from a game after getting freaked out? Uh, no, not any physical games. No, uh, free. T- no, no, no. Which makes I think us. I think it makes us tough. Uh, I think probably games of fiasco. We've had to gently wind down or be amused. I don't know if we've been freaked out, but certainly. T- oh no, no, no. Well, I f- well, the closest thing is we had a game of fiasco where we, during the playset uh, we created a movie where one of the characters was very racist. And uh, we didn't walk out, but a friend of ours walked out because he couldn't handle it, and, oh, really? and we just stopped that game. Yeah, that was Tom. Uh, and he, really? we, we just had to stop. It wasn't. It wasn't fun for him. Um, I wasn't there for. I that. found out at conventions what they do uh, for story game conventions is they'll often have a, a, a sort of no card yeah. at the middle of the table, and if you don't like where a story's going, you just reach out and you touch the X. You don't even have to say anything. But what's cute is that if you like where a story's going now at some story conventions, you have a, a circle as well. Ah. So if you really like the story, you press the circle. And I realise that's just comment-up voting for a, for a live-action <laughs> story game. It's funny you say that. A friend of mine, this is years ago now, but was talking about a similar thing at a role-playing convention, um, doing traditional tabletop stuff, doing Call of Cthulhu or something, and, it, and the GM saying, right, this is set in the deep south of America in the 20s. It's really racist. I need to make sure everyone is okay with these concepts. Because these things are going to come up, and obviously, you know, it's a story; it's not real. But yeah, absolutely. But we've we've done that before when we played things. Yeah, I think it's called the something in veils conversation, um, which is all very very wise, very wise to have. Yeah. Uh, Michael Fox uh, at Idle Michael, uh, lovely Michael, says, out of all the SN recent SN releases, which are you most terrified <laughs> of missing out on? Uh, oh, right. Kudos to Michael for incorporating our theme into that question. Yeah, that's that's a good one. I don't want to miss out on Tashkalar, Arena of Whatever, um, which is the new Vlada Tvartel game, not actually called Arena of Whatever, but it's the new Vlada <laughs> game, and it's like Summoner Wars where you have soldiers on a board, but yes. you need to get soldiers into a certain formation to summon bigger things, and then you need to get those bigger things into a formation to summon a legendary thing, I think. Um, the thing is, we're really big fans of... I might vote for the same thing. I might actually agree with you on yeah, this. Vlada uh, Chibata's Tashkalar. Because he's never disappointed us. Ever. He's very good at game design. So I'd like That's, to see he, how he, he does He's good this. at game design. I'd, I'd like to see how well, he does it. What combat. are good board games? Because he always does something different every time. And now he does. he's doing this. Yeah, it? this is the amazing thing. Yeah. He invents Tashkalar and looks totally unique. Um, so yeah, fascinated. Let's see how it plays. Uh... 
slow roller at anxiety down says, "Are horror games better or worse when they rely on dice? Elder Sign, Betrayal, etc." I would say yes, because there's something fundamentally crap about dice. There is. Like, can you imagine rolling a dice and going, "Ah!" <laughs> uh, it's not going to happen, is it? That's that. I I like the element of random chance that dice can bring. Actually, even though dice I like can dice, be dice thing. are great. Um, but, but I think uh, they're good in they're good in combat games, and I've always liked them in RPGs. Of like, I need to hit a monster. I've got no idea if I'm going to do it. It's six seconds of yeah, game Yeah, but it's time. not scary, is it? It's scary just before you roll the dice. Maybe the prospect of having to roll the dice is scary, but rolling them is... The thing is, when I play any game with dice, what I tend to do before every dice roll is just shout, Boom! At people, <laughs> uh, all the time, and I've been doing that for 33 years. Uh, at Prezzo wants to know, was that a face at the window? Is that Jesus. That's That's actually really that's good. That's Paul Prezzo's face at the window. Oh, fuck. Okay, so well done, Paul. Where's the rest of his body? <laughs> Aaron at Aaron Tunney says, "What game has the best new game smell when you open the box?" Oh, that's oh. a good question. That's good. It's been a while since I smelled a game because all of the releases we've been sent are from Essen, so they're playtested. So they've already been opened. We had that, I think, a while ago when we got the special edition Galaxy Trucker, oh, which was stank. just a whole bunch of cardboard. <laughs> As if what they'd actually done is pumped in extra smell afterwards. Well, they um, they do that with cars, don't they? Do they? I thought the new car smell was pumped in. Oh, that might, that might be apocrypha. No, it might be. I like Netrunner cards now because I'm addicted, and so the smell of them is great. Wow. Board with Life at I'm Board with Life. Excellent board game review. So it says, what game has the most terrifying rules? Hi, Board with Life. Hi, Board with Hi. Life. Love you. Uh, tease the board game for couples and groups. Hi, which has rules that you might want to remove uh, clothing or kiss people to your left and right. Tease. Full of handsome men. Sorry, what were you saying? Tease. The most terrifying um, rules. Kiss someone. Oh, yeah. Well, some of those... I fucking, <laughs> can I just say that I fucking hate um, games that make you like uh, are we going to bleep that yes no probably okay hang on let me clap so I can no, find I this in the no I don't care okay fine so uh, uh, Cranium yes where it's like you're, oh. playing, you're playing a game where it's like hey everybody make stuff with plasticine answer questions and then abruptly out of nowhere Paul stand up in front of everyone and do an impression of Jim Carrey it's like that's no come on really is that not does that not alienate a good chunk of your audience immediately it can do yeah I'm not a fan of Cranium for a bunch of reasons uh, Michael Sampson says uh, at Sampy are fear intention in games fun alone or do they need the chat afterwards where both sides recount the game from their perspective that is the best part of any asymmetrical game basically yeah where you go oh I was an alien and I thought you were in the elevator but you weren't oh it was great have you been where have you been uh, I've been to uh, <laughs> the moon apparently well that's a really cool thing about asymmetrical games is uh, like when when we did the Middle Earth Quest review that's the thing that comes up in that review is us talking about how you've got different objectives you've got different rules that govern what you do um, and so it's not always apparent why the other player's doing what they're doing which should Makes sense. Uh, Should absolutely. be that way. No, I totally agree. Um, Mascoto de Vagabundo says, uh, this is at is underscore John, you go to a gamer's abode for a new to board games night. What games are you terrified they'll inflict on the newbies present? Munchkin. Uh, what's the worst? Mm. Yeah. Munchkin, Monopoly. Well, no one's going to inflict Monopoly at a thing. They might. Uh, <laughs> it's just such a depressing question at this point. Um I'm just going to clap because no one wants to hear me sing. That was a really good clap. <clears throat> oh, let's answer a really self-indulgent one. Um, John Hopkins, at John Hopkins says, can you recommend a good... Okay, are we ready for this? No. Two-player two player. strategy game 
contemporary non-geeky female friendly theme. So let's go there. So basically, a two-player game with a not terrible theme. Takedo, maybe. Takedo has that beautiful Japanese theme, uh, and it's just generally not what you expect a board game to Takedo be. Takedo also would suit more than two people if you want to bring other people into your gaming situation. Your gaming situation. Your gaming. Si- that sounds like a codependency drug habit. Pandemic is. Pa- um, oh no, Pandemic's got to be the two-player game. Think? People argue. Yeah, no, Pandemic's really strong two-player. It's tense. You can buy the expansions. To it's got an up. unexpected kind of thing. And you're to working it. together, and yeah, it has that modern theme. No, Pandemic's a great one. Not Memoir 44, probably, even though it's really good because, you know, tanks and things, some people don't like tanks. Uh, yes. I don't know why. <laughs> Should we move on to the final segment it's of It's like our a, show? just a big bin with a gun that's angry. It's like a really fat Dalek coming at you. Why so would you need anyone to go up some stairs. Like but a tank, can, you could be up some stairs and it would just not care, it'd just shoot at you anyway. I'm going to stop this now. And now, presenting the Shut Up and Sit Down Game of the Month. Of the podcast, because every three weeks there's more than one in a month. Sometimes. Aren't there? So I'm here with Quentin Smith of Shut Up and Sit Down. Hi. Hi, Hi Quint. Hi, Paul. So you're, you're here to uh, tell me about a very good gaming experience that isn't that was kind of like a board game but wasn't was kind of like the resistance yes what was it so our podcast game of the month is two rooms and a boom which isn't even out yet but i believe the kickstarter goes live today oh really yes okay um i could be wrong today as in what's today's date today in the day we're releasing the podcast so Ah, two rooms and a boom i was at a festival last week and i demoed for a whole day as Mm -hmm. well as penciled in I just thought it would be a fun thing to do because it's a live action game with a ton of players and it just needs a big space. And I thought, where, where am I going to get the chance to play this at a, at a festival? How yeah. many players does it need, first of all? It needs at least six up to like 40 or 50 if you want 40 it. 40 or 50. It's like Werewolf. It just scales up endlessly. Okay, all right. Um, and I demoed it for a day and they sent over some, uh, some people helping at the festival to help bulk up my numbers and you know, collar people like, like a couple of little sheepdogs that I had running around grabbing people. Um, and then at the end of the day, they said, they'd been playing the game for eight hours, and then they said, can you please come back tomorrow and demo it for another day? Let's just demo this all day again. That's how much fun we were having with Two Rooms and a Boom. So uh, the theme of terror came from the fact that this is technically a game about terrorism. Okay. So that didn't go where you are expecting. But uh, you'll have you between six and 60 people. Yeah. And you get them in a big group, and you say, okay, everybody, you're gonna, you give them each a card. And the card will either say that they, they're on the red team, the red team, or the blue team. And one player on the blue team will be the president. One player on the red team is a bomber. This is a card that's totally secret. So they're all given a random team, and then randomly they're divided into two rooms, okay? Mm-hmm. The game lasts just 15 minutes, uh, which was really great in getting people to come and play, because you say, it'll only last 15 minutes and you'll have fun. Um, and... Uh, so in these two rooms, they have to then do hostage, hostage exchanges. So let's say you, me, Paul, are in a room with ten other people. Yeah. There's another room with ten other people in the other room. In our room, we have to democratically elect a leader, and then we have to send two or maybe three hostages to the other room. We have five minutes to do that. At the end of that, we'll have four minutes to do the next hostage exchange. Then three, two, and then one minute. And after that final one minute hostage exchange, the bomb goes off. Killing. So let me guess, the bomber needs to be in the room with the president for them to win. Exactly. And not for the, for the president's side to win. Right, exactly. The whole red team want to get the bomber in the room as the president and so on. Which even like, um, uh, the, the biggest way this can go wrong is if broadly everyone knows who the bomber and president are. Which in like about 30 games I never saw happen. There was never complete information. But even if that happened and people made a mistake, 
you still have that beautiful final round of negotiation whereby, let's say, I know the president's in the other room, I know the bomber's in our room. Do we send the bomber over? Because if, if they know that we're probably going to send the bomber over, they'll send the president over. So there's even an element of uh, you wondering what your team in the other room are going to do. Oh, absolutely. Like, if right. you, like and, then, and then, oh my God. What the developers have done is they've made... A, this is all print and play, by the way, everybody. Um, I don't know if they're going to pull the cards down. So all I did was, um, because the Kickstarter wasn't out yet, just download the rules and the cards, which you can do. They've made them available for playtesting. Um, and I made my own print and play set. Um, and, uh, God, within this print and play set, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of new cards you can bring into your game. And these are all, right, these are roles? Absolutely. So in addition to the bomber and the president and the ordinary team members, yeah. um, you'll have... Uh, other, oh, I should explain, uh, before we go any further, any deeper into two rooms and a boom. Okay. The way you actually find your team members, obviously, because when the game starts, you have no idea who anyone is, you might look at your card and you're on a red team. Uh, you might say, okay, who's red? You can announce that. Or you can, you can go up to a stranger and, and say, say, what color, what are, color you? are you? Or, and then maybe you walk off and you show with your hands just the corner of your card, enough to show that your card's red. Then he maybe reveals his red card and it turns out he's the bomber. Okay, now, now you're cooking with the ass. Then you can go back to the room and say, we found out we're both red. What other reds are there? Then you find out you're outnumbered by blues and you're fucked at that point because the blues will then obviously snowball an election and um and elect and try and manipulate what you're doing exactly unless you can find some way to get them to kick you out the room in the hope that you're yeah with the it's, so it's how all... would, how do, what do the other roles do to this because obviously the bomber explodes and the president tries really hard not to explode. <laughs> yeah there's a ton of interesting stuff like um uh shy characters are characters who cannot show their card so you're ah. a red shy character means uh, means that you just can't reveal your card to anybody, which is interesting because it means that some players in the game are just floating around being quite coy. And as the president, you can refuse to show your card to anyone, which will make people think you're the shy card, but you're actually the president. And anyone could refuse to show their oh, card. Oh yeah, to any there, there's no, anyway. there are no rules. In the first couple of games, we had to. Ha I, I was torn because in our first game, we had a couple who knew each other, and one of the, the man put his card in his pocket, and the wife just started trying to take the card out. Uh, and it was the thing of, do we house rule that? Like, do we, do we make that illegal or is that fine? And other things, like, let's say two characters walk away to a corner of the room to show their cards. What if I just walk over and start, like, literally leaning my head in? And, it, and this, this is the reason it was so fascinating. So this is a, a question that I've immediately got then. When you're talking about a game that's six, seven or eight players, that sounds like quite a lot. Mm -hmm. When you're some, starting to talk about 20 or 30, <laughs> do you need to do a lot of umpiring or could you kind of let the game Well, run? it depends. If you're playing with pro gamers... Pro I, I, gamers. For me, yeah, sorry, Jesus. What do I sound? What am I like? Um, if you're playing with people who don't play as many games... Pro uh, We're pro it's fine. Anyway, we are I, I was basically moderating the whole time and telling people when they had to do hostage exchanges... If you were playing with people who played a lot of games, you would just need stopwatches. Yeah. And when the stopwatch goes off, you have to stop talking and the leader has to elect hostages. Because we were playing with people who were obviously quite into the theme and they're being tense, so when the timer ran out, they just kept talking. And I had to literally walk over and go, shut up, everybody, and point, who's the leader? And they'd all point, and I'd say, don't look at anybody, who are you sending? At which point it's an awesomely tense decision yeah. anyway. Um, but yeah, so some of the other cards then. We've got... Um, the card that everyone wanted, it was great. After playing five games, they said, oh, but if only there was a blue card that said you're on the red team, so when you do a color reveal and show the corner of your card, you're actually a spy. And I said, what, this card? And held up a card yeah. that they'd made. Yeah. And immediately we cut that out and sleeved that and started playing with that, which is hilarious because everyone becomes really cagey. It's like, look, I'm on the red team. Look at the corner of my card. And you go, no, show me the whole thing. And they don't do it because they're a spy and you've rumbled them. 
Um, yeah. Other stuff like the, the president has a disease, one person on the blue team is a doctor, and they must show each other their cards to heal the president. Oh, there's another thing, isn't there, about potentially zombies? Oh my god, there's so much. The, what, uh, one card is green, that is the zombie card. Um, whereby if you look at the zombie, if, if you co-reveal with a zombie, mm -hmm. you become team zombie. And you abandon whatever role you had before um, in spirit, if not literally. So if you're the bomber, your bomb's still going to go off. And then at the end of the game, team zombie, however many of you they've spread and become, win if everyone's dead or a zombie. So if you've managed to turn the bomber into a zombie, then you want everyone in your room to be a zombie, but then you send the bomber into the other room at the last second to kill everybody else. I don't know, there's, there is just so much. And then the, just... Oh my god, they clearly had this idea and then sat down for like a month coming Adding up with more and everything. More. And of course it's all customizable. So we were doing things like, let's play with the body snatchers now. And the body snatchers, oh, I could talk about this all day. The body snatcher is a card where if you co-reveal with like, let's say someone else on the red team, you must or you can take their card. So for example, if I co-reveal with someone on the other team, I get their blue card. I get, so they, for a start, they no longer have a card and must, you know, like persuade the rest of their team that they're blue and got body snatched. Mm -hmm. um, but also, the body snatcher now has a blue card. So let's say uh, I'm a body snatcher, I get your card, and so now I have, I have a really good way of passing for team blue. Then, if I can just get sent into the other room, they won't uh, know that I've been body snatched. So I'll just, for all extents and purposes, appear a blue member of the team. So it sounds like, I mean, it, the, the numbers of this, uh, you could play with a group of friends... At home, yes. or you could play if you're a teacher with your whole class. You absolutely could, and or learn about. It's a party game. You could play if you have a flat warming and there's a dozen people or more coming around. Absolutely, you know, and it's so. If you can actually have multiple rooms, that's great. We didn't need multiple rooms. All you really need is just that you can't hear the yeah. other people. So you could do it in in two halves, of, two ends of a corridor. Or something, yeah, maybe. exactly. Which is pretty much what we were, we were playing out in the open uh, for the second half, which was in a in a garden. In a garden, you know, it it's just so flexible, and you know what, you can. Make it more mind gamey or funnier. Like the cart, I'm, I, I've been telling my friends about this, and we're going to his housewarming this Saturday, and uh, I can mess that up because now I can start playing with the dumb cards. Like one of them is you're red or the blue team, but you're blind. You literally have to close your eyes for the entire 15 minutes of the game, and so for a start, that's just intrinsically funny. As you get have to walk between rooms, but you have to be led by the hand by someone. But also it's funny because the president can close their eyes for the whole game and pretend to be the blind man, convincingly. But also, if you're blind, you can't see anyone else's cards. Yeah, yeah. So other people are coming up to you going, I'm also on the red team. And you don't even know to believe them or not. Uh, because you're blind, yeah, but you still have a vote in deciding leadership. So if you're blind, then you could end up having two rooms where both the leaders in each room are red, if you really do it well enough. Wow. Just tons of funny shit. And then grey cards... Great cards that are playing a different game to everybody else. Like, um, we played briefly with Moby Dick and Ahab, who are two grey cards. They don't care if the president lives or dies, but they want their opponents to yeah. be dead at the end of the game. So they're trying to find out who the bomber is and then get the other person in the room with them. Or just not be in the room. Endless, endless, endless stuff. Wow. But okay. you know, what I do want to talk about with you, though, is um, obviously we've played a lot of the Resistance. We've yes. passed the Resistance. We've passed yes. Werewolf. Yes. These are games where you have, again, the similar thing of hidden teams, but... They're longer, 45 minutes of lying, deduction. I, I think, especially so now I've played two rooms in a boom, I can announce this, everybody, I am bored of the resistance. Every, I, the, the pattern of the game goes a very similar way each time. You know, like, uh, uh, the first mission's probably going to pass, but whether it doesn't or not, players then explode into accusations. 
you're going to choose each other. You're not. I, mm, I don't often see fantastic plays in the resistance. You know, if I'm on the bad guy side, that's exciting, but yeah, it's just somewhat exhausting. You know, two, you and me, Paul, go on a mission. Yeah, we come back. The mission's sabotaged, and what happens next is we just start shouting at each other. Whether we're on the good team or the bad team, it's. There are, I think Resistance is a game that falls into sort of two or three different acts where there are certain points of the game where particular analysis happens, particular act happen at certain times. I don't know if I, I would say I'm bored with it yet, but it does have an arc that it goes through, I think. Certainly whenever I've played with whoever I've played with, we've gone through, you know, this particular thing of, of you start low at some point in the second or third mission, that's almost always when something happens, except for very, very rare occasions. Um, and then by the fourth or fifth one, that's where you're spending a lot of time uh, cross-examining everyone and everything that's happened. Yeah, but that cross-examining very rarely comes up with fruit, in my experience. Are you? How do you feel about Werewolf? Because obviously the roles in that are different. Well, now, obviously when the Resistance now. came out, we said, oh my god, it's Werewolf, but players aren't dead and don't have to sit out the game. Yeah. The thing is, is that that has now... I've been playing Resistance for years, and finally... I've come up against a problem whereby round four and five and th round four and five of the reasons are exhausting because everyone's analysing everything, but so are the bad guys. So you just get a hot mess of misinformation, and it's and it's you, it's extremely difficult to glom the truth from that. Mm -hmm. Rounds two and three I might go that way, but are sort of generally more sort of like, well, we need more information, so we're not going to spend too much energy accusing each other. Round one's probably going to be fine. Werewolf, though. With the different roles in Werewolf, like the Seer, like the Hunter, like... My favourite thing at the minute in any of these games is the Lone Wolf card, which is a card in Werewolf, in Ultimate Werewolf, that Matt reviewed a couple of weeks ago. And if you're not aware of Werewolf, it's a game where some of the players are werewolves. Every night, quote-unquote, um, all the players close their eyes, the werewolves open their eyes and pick who to eat. Every day, everybody opens their eyes and decides who to lynch. And obviously the villagers want to lynch the werewolves. And yeah. So there's a card in Werewolf called um, uh, the Lone Wolf, an Ultimate Werewolf. Um, which is a werewolf player, and he only wins if he's the only werewolf left alive. Which is like the renegade in Bang, who, uh, when you're playing the card game Bang, you know, you all have your hidden roles, apart from the sheriff, who's obvious. The renegade needs to be the last person standing. Not the, not have their team, someone on their team standing. They need everybody <laughs> to die. Yeah. Which is, uh, at the same time, kind of amazing and cool, but also daunting, but possibly in an exciting way if you're that kind of player who wants that challenge. Yeah, this is what I'm... like. Yeah, at this point, I think unbalancing these games of negotiation is more interesting to me than the Resistance, because what we're seeing... right? Okay, well, I guess this is a whole other topic thread, but the Resistance is a game where, after playing it for years, fundamentally now I'm frustrated because it's almost impossible to unpick the puzzle, which mm. means it's shouting for an hour. Um, Werewolf offers something that's unbalanced and absurd, but tense and evocative. Two Rooms in a Boom offers something that's funny, and because you're standing up and walking around, it's, it's more of an experience. It's it also has no player elimination, though, which is in Correct. interesting. Yeah, although there is a card called The Mummy, and if you co-reveal with The Mummy, then you can't speak for the rest of the game. Wow. But I think you're, you're, you're smiling as I even tell yeah. you this. That's the spirit of the game, right? Um, because the president is going to spend half the time not speaking anymore. <laughs> Yeah, um, so, uh, what was I saying? Um, yeah, what we're seeing now is there's a kind of post-resistance wave of games that offer, that know the problem with the resistance is that it's it's a puzzle you can't quite solve. So, also, Mayday is a thing. Yeah, Mayday, I think, is being kickstarted at the minute. It's a game where you all play the crew of an airline, sort of, uh, of a passenger craft, and you're trying to figure out who the 
saboteurs are. And you have a time limit before everything goes to hell? I think that's right. And then, But also, it's the, the interesting thing is that every turn you can ask questions of other players and you start to figure out if they're trustworthy or not. Yeah. So it's the resistance, kind of, but you're given actual hard information about people. Fantasy fights... Bloodbound is a similar thing whereby you're vampires and you've got clans of vampires and you're stabbing each other. But every time someone takes essentially a wound, they reveal part of the, who they are. So it might be their rank within their clan or their affiliation or something like that. Ah. So uh, essentially, it's a, yeah, you, you are given stuff to go on. I've heard not great things about Bloodbound. We've got a copy in the other room, haven't played it yet. But I've heard that actually the problem then is it goes the other way. Because the resistance, if that has a problem that I'm discovering now, it's that it offers not enough information to stop the game from devolving into just shouting. You think Bloodbound offers too much? Yeah, well, think about it. Like, if you're a player and you're lying, but also you have an amount of hard information on, like, seven people around you. Like, he might be this, he might be this or this, he might be this, this or this, he might be this, he's probably this. It's like... And then everybody else trying to work out what they know from the information that they've got. And then you've got roles that mix up things. So that may or may not work. We should try it, I suppose. We should try it. But, you know, I guess if I have a point with my chatter, it's that absurdity right now is more valuable to me in negotiation games than uh, than actually solving anything. It's not quite the same thing, but uh, we've always liked Cosmic Encounter. And that's a game that is deliberately imbalanced and partly about negotiating with Absolutely, other people about yeah. what you do and who you turn on. Um, and we've always, like for two years, we've espoused that game. Yeah, I remember uh, when I was demoing two rooms last week, uh, there was a cute moment where I introduced the negotiators. The negotiators are cards that can't colour reveal. So you can't do the showing just the corner and the colour of your card. You have to flash your card fully with somebody. Mm. Um, and people were saying, well, why is that good? What's the point? And it was like, no, no, no. This, it's not good if you get this. You're just hampered. And they, <laughs> they changed the metagame for everybody. Yeah. Because anyone can pretend to be a negotiator and knowing that negotiators are around, you can be more coy about showing your card. Yeah. Being blind isn't a benefit, but it does make the game more interesting. Um, so, yeah. And yeah, Cosmic's a great example. A negotiation game where you have something to negotiate with because your power might be weak. Might be stronger or weaker. Or it might d- The thing is, I mean, it also sounds like when you're describing all these roles, they may not be good for you playing them, but they may be good for other people to exploit if you can get together right. with a couple of other people Absolutely. and manufacture either cooperation or a cooperated lie mm-hmm. together, and which is a thing. Other players also... And a fascinating element in negotiation games is other players binding the group together. I think... Yeah. Um, I got frustrated in... Uh, yeah, it, it's weird. Um, I, got, I get annoyed. I mentioned nothing personal earlier. Games where players can advance up the score track and then other players pull them down. Twilight Imperium gets around that by allowing you to make sudden massive pushes for victory points if you're good enough. I have mm. seen that happen. Yeah. Um, rather than a sort of slow trickle. Um, but I'm also thinking of TikTok in Cosmic Encounter. Or Tick, maybe? Which is an alien race whereby every turn you take a counter off the sheet and if they run out of 20 counters, they just win. Yeah. Um, Which results in a lot of interesting negotiation stuff. Um, Yeah, I guess I'm wondering now what problem I have with games where you all attack a leader and pull them back down. But I'm okay with games where one player will automatically be better or worse than everybody else and let that shape the negotiation? Because isn't that the same thing? Well, the thing is, we as people, are. it's great to have a, a game mechanic or a game system that tries to balance everything for us and is equal and equitable or something like chess where all the pieces on every side do the same thing, you take turns. But we as people, as players, can adapt. We can improvise yes. and adapt. And the thing is, playing a game like... 
cosmic encounter or I guess two rooms you look at what you're presented with this time you play the game which is completely different to last time you have a different experience you just try to adapt to what's happening and everyone else tries to adapt and it's not that you're hampered as much by who you are as you're hampered by everyone's adaptations and their adaptations <laughs> yeah, and absolutely. they're lying. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. There was a great moment where playing two rooms, one of the few games I was actually able to play in rather than just moderate, um, whereby I was a hostage and I got sent alone to the sort of long walk of shame <laughs> between rooms. And I arrived at a room and we were playing with this 12-year-old kid and he takes two steps to almost meet me as I enter what I realise is his room. He's the leader. Oh, right. And, uh, and, he, and he goes, stop. What colour are you? And I'm like, is it the done thing in this room to just tell colours? Are they open? And I was like, no. And then everyone else is like surprised that I just told this kid I wasn't going to tell him what team I'm on. I'm from that. I went immediately, do you, who wants to be leader? Do you want to be leader instead? Pointing at someone from the group. And clearly, just in this room, it was the accepted thing that the kid was yeah. leader. So when they realised they could vote again, they were like, oh shit. And they all immediately voted for this other stranger. Which was cute, you know? It's like... It social was, kind of power dynamics. It was playful, and it was a social power dynamic. Uh, so, you'd recommend it to people? I would recommend uh, getting rid of tiny kid Napoleons uh, to anybody, yes. But the game as a whole? for Oh, absolutely. Does it, do, did you get a chance to scale it quickly? Did you get a chance to do it with, like, half a dozen people and dozens? or were you just? I never went as small as six. I think the smallest group we had was, like, eight. Um, How was uh, that? And it was fine. You, you halve the game, so it even just becomes, it becomes a farcical seven-minute game. Uh, okay. rather than even a 15-minute game. That almost sounds perfect for a party for icebreaking. It is entirely perfect for a party, assuming you can get people on their feet and pretending to be the president. But yes. you know what? You know, All I can really say to just sell this and maybe get people to um, pick up the Kickstarter is that every game with new people started the same, whereby I'd watch them and they wouldn't really know the game. They wouldn't yet figure it out. Mm -hmm. And then about after the first round of hostage exchanges, they would get it. They would understand. They would suddenly start looking really into the game. Yeah. One hostage exchange, all the men realized, oh, crap. Oh, God. Hang on. Is that going to happen to me? Where's the president? Let's let's start playing. And then they take on this beautiful, serious expression uh, of face. Um, expression of face. No, I love that. I love that. That's um, not at all related, but that's the thing I've always loved about Citadels is I've introduced... It travels... It's small travels really easy. Introduce it to a new group of people. They go, what's going on? By the time you've done the first round and they've seen every role and what everyone does, they just... They yeah. cock it. And everyone just wants to be that person next. They want to be that character. <laughs> so I would imagine with two rooms, the game ends and everyone wants to play again to see who they can be the yes, next time. Because yes. they've got their idea of how they're going to play that character. Yeah. Oh, you know yeah. what? Even the funniest is um, the... Um, Oh, yeah. No, we played with that. Wrong. Uh, I was going to talk about how the Amnesiac was fun, but then it turned out we were playing with the wrong rules, but the game functioned anyway. It was like made of rubber. We could get things wrong and it would still just be entertaining. So it's good. Turns out it's good and you could probably... Maybe it's just fun because people put in two different rooms is funny. Board game designers, get on it. I want to see a version of Cosmic that's, Encounter where you all have to go into a negotiation room. That's really interesting. I mean, that's the thing that we used to do role-playing is uh, take, oh, yeah. take a player out of the room and have a chat with them and no one else knows what the heck you've had. Some, <laughs> I used to do it and we'd not say anything. I'd just take a player out of the room for a while and bring them back in and everyone would wonder why that has just happened. Yeah, really, really fun Spaces are a, are a thing. Um, we've been going on for a while. Oh, God, this is the longest podcast we've done in a bit. Let's oh, no. wind it down. With a couple of uh, a couple of nice requests. Sponsored by Twinings. Sponsored by Twinings. Tea. Uh, I should get a cup of tea after this, actually. Um, but yes, 
we, we've not really done much of this before, uh, but we're just going to give you a polite reminder because apparently it's the done thing that we should actually talk about the money we're trying to raise. We have had a donations drive and it's gone really well. And thank you, everyone who's pledged. Yeah, can we just say thank you so much? Um, it's gone really well. It has. Been very, a lot better than we actually expected. The thing is that uh, you should know briefly, very quickly about Shut Up and Sit Down, is that we have no advertising. The Amazon money we get is, is useful, but not definitely doesn't keep the show going. What keeps the show going is you guys. Yes. And if you do find yourself with a bit of spare change in your pocket, we really, every, every little helps, we'd really appreciate it. And of course, if you donate $30, we will send you the Gold Cup package. Uh, just head to our site, uh, shutupshow.com or shutupandsitdown.com. Uh, we have a nice big donation tab. It's outlined. It'll tell you exactly what we do. You can subscribe. You can donate once if you want. You can change your pledge later. Yep. You can cancel cool your feature. subscription whenever you want. Don't and do that. So <laughs> but you can. Don't do that. We've put that in there don't because it seems equitable to do so. Just so. don't do it. Um, but yeah, as long as you donate over thirty dollars before the pledge season ends in December or in on the first of January, you'll get. We'll send you wherever you live in the world a goodie bag containing all kinds of awesome stuff. Uh, it'll basically be an episode of Shut Up and Sit Down in a bag with all kinds of. Uh, Bonuses like uh, promos, download codes, uh, paper We've off Brendan. I can't say, but there's like already a couple of cool things coming from Oh, yeah. No, it's going to be yeah. great. And, and you will keep Shut Up and Sit Down going and keep us listening. So thanks for that. Um, and finally, oh, one more request. If yes. donations seem slightly too much for you, if it just seems like an exhausting prospect, some credit card is lost down the back of the sofa, don't know where it is. We would love it if you could uh, up rate the show on iTunes. Um, turns out yes. that there are a bunch of board game podcasts on iTunes. They're not very good. Uh, so if you just review us Some on iTunes, subscribe, and uh, just give us a nice little five-star rating. Yes, uh, it certainly, it always helps if people upvote us on iTunes, upvote us on Reddit. We don't tend to post our own stuff on Reddit, do we? Because I don't know if that's the done thing. No, not really. So yeah, if you if you own an iPhone or an iPad, or just have iTunes installed, doesn't matter whether you use the iTunes podcast stuff, if you can just rate us, that would help massively. Thank you, yes. So, uh, what do you do now? Uh, I've got no idea. Let's play a game of Cube Quest and have a cup of tea. But no, because the cubes would go into the tea. Mm, okay. Unless... Well, let's play a game of Cube Quest and drink tea from sippy cups. The... Like the baby cups that can't spill. Do you have some? Yes. Come with me.